For 400 years, the Israelites languished in Egypt as the pharaohs built Egyptian cities on the backs of Israelite slaves. 400 years of oppression, 400 years of slave labor, 400 years of groaning. Finally, in the fullness of time, we read in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23 that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The Lord appeared to a Hebrew shepherd living in the land of Midian, a man named Moses, a child of slaves who had been raised in Pharaoh's courts but now was living in exile in the wilderness. And God commanded his servant Moses to go and to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt and to lead them into the land which God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, promised them by covenant. And God determined that he would deliver his people in a very particular way. Salvation through judgment. Deliverance through destruction. So we read in Exodus chapter 7, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts My people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Do you see it? Salvation through judgment. By the same acts of God's sovereign power, namely the plagues, God would accomplish three of His sovereign purposes. He delivered His people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. He brought the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth to its knees in judgment. And He waged holy war upon the gods of Egypt, demonstrating His supremacy over all of creation. So one by one, plague By plague, God wrought devastation upon Egypt. Thunder, hail, and fire rained down from heaven, laying waste to Egyptian fields and Egyptian livestock. The waters of the Nile turned to blood and were contaminated, rendering them undrinkable. A thick and unnatural darkness fell upon the land, a darkness, Exodus says, to be felt. Locusts swept over Egypt, devouring everything in sight. And finally, the destroyer passed through the land, bringing death in his wake to every firstborn in Egypt. By the way, quick question. Did I just describe the plagues of Exodus or Revelation 8 and 9? Yes. In these acts of judgment, God made a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. See, evidently, God had put a seal on His people. 
such that the plagues and judgments did not touch them. And in spite of all of these judgments and plagues, the people of Egypt did not repent of their idolatries and their wickedness. It's Revelation 8 and 9 all over again. Forty years later, a generation of tribulation in the wilderness and the people of Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan River overlooking the promised land, the beautiful land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where God would dwell in the midst of His people and they would be His people and He would be their God. But there stood in the way of their entrance into the land of promise a city, strong and powerful, impenetrable behind its fortified walls. How would Israel ever conquer such an impregnable fortress? Well, God issued to his people a rather strange command. Joshua chapter 6. He told them, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go, every one, straight before him. And with the fall of Jericho, the great city, the people of God entered into their covenant land. Now these two Old Testament events, the plagues of Egypt and the fall of Jericho, form the backdrop for the next vision cycle that we find in the book of Revelation, the vision of the seven trumpets. Each trumpet issues in an Exodus-like plague upon the earth And the culmination of the seven trumpets brings an earthquake and the fall of the great city, chapter 11, verse 13. Followed by the declaration that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The vision of the seven trumpets spans four chapters, running from chapters 8 through the 11th chapter, and as we walk our way through this section, you will see the theme of salvation through judgment emerging over and over again, sounding as clearly as the trumpets which are in the hands of the angels. See, God is intent in this age on accomplishing the same three purposes as He did in the days when He brought His people out of Egypt. He's going to deliver his people from their bondage and slavery in this world. He's going to bring the kingdom of this world to its knees in judgment. And he is going to demonstrate in the sight of all of creation his supremacy over the nations of the earth and over the powers of darkness that stand behind those nations. He's doing the exodus again. Revelation 8 begins with an introduction to the next vision cycle, thus transitioning from the vision of the seven seals to the vision of the seven trumpets. Verse 1 saw the Lamb open the seventh seal, bringing all of heaven to a dramatic halt and to a deafening silence for half an hour. That ceaseless, 
cacophony of praise that had been resounding in John's ears since the beginning of chapter 4 pauses as all of heaven takes a collective gasp at the demonstration of holy wrath that they have just witnessed. And just at the moment that we expect to see Christ coming on the clouds in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead, suddenly John is transported into another vision. And this will be the way of things until we get to the end of Revelation. John will lead us again and again and again right up to the moment where he has us straining forward in anticipation, waiting to see Christ return in power and glory, only to be whisked away again into yet another vision depicting this present age of tribulation. See, John's a playwright. And he is unfolding for us the drama of the ages, and every good drama builds tension. Revelation is an unfolding drama with multiple acts, and John is building suspense until the end, when finally, in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse whose name is Faithful and True appears with his eyes like flames of fire and with many crowns upon his head, clothed in a robe dipped in blood with a sharp sword proceeding from his mouth as he leads the armies of heaven in the cavalry charge of the ages that will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Then... Will the King of kings and Lord of lords stand victorious on the field of battle and declare that the time for judgment has come? But not yet. John has much more to show us concerning the present before he's ready to show us the future. And so verse 2 transports us into another vision cycle. John says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it down on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the identity of these seven angels has been the topic of much speculation. That's what theologians love to do with Revelation. They speculate. G.K. Beale wonders if they aren't to be identified with the seven angels of the seven churches from Revelation 1 through 3. The fact that they are spoken of as a distinct group, John identifies them as the seven angels who stand before the throne of God leads others to conjecture that maybe they're associated with the seven archangels of Jewish apocalyptic literature. Either one of those may be correct, but I'm inclined to think that they are best understood against the backdrop of Joshua 6, where the seven priests were given seven trumpets to blow, and upon sounding the trumpets, the great city fell. I think that's what's going on. At any rate, we will come back to the seven angels with the seven trumpets in verse 6. But first, John's attention is drawn to another angel, 
who came and stood at the golden altar of incense, which is before the throne of God, beneath which we saw the souls of the martyrs in Revelation 6-9. And the angel is holding in his hand a golden censer, which is an instrument that holds burning coals and on which is placed incense. And when the incense falls on the burning coals in the censer, it creates this thick and aromatic smoke. And when the censer is swung back and forth like they did in old covenant temple worship, then the smoke would billow and it would fill the sanctuary with this sense of ethereal majesty. That's what's going on in the throne room. To this angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. And I want you to note, once again, we see the interdependence of these different visions in Revelation. They are all united. They are all connected. We've seen this before. Revelation 5.8, John saw the 24 elders, each of whom held a harp and golden bowls of incense, which John identified there as the prayers of the saints. So the incense in Revelation 5.8 is the prayers of the saints. Then in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, the martyrs beneath the altar, that's the golden altar, cry out to God for judgment and vengeance on those who dwell upon the earth. Then here in Revelation 8, 3 to 4, the angel offers much incense, again with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rises before God from the hand of the angel. Do you see? It's the same event transpiring. The angel then took the golden censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it down upon the earth bringing about thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, all of which in the Old Testament are harbingers of God's coming judgment and wrath. So what are we to make of this introductory scene, verses 2 to 5? I think that what we are observing is Revelation's version of Exodus 2.23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It rose up before God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And as a result, what did He do? Plagues upon Egypt. This is Revelation's version. What we are observing in this scene is Revelation 6, 9 through 11 from a different angle. There the saints, the martyrs, the children of God were crying out for rescue, crying out for deliverance, for justice, for vengeance, saying, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth? So we have the saints praying in Revelation 5, 
The martyrs crying out in Revelation 6 and all the saints praying in Revelation 8 and their cry for rescue, for judgment, for justice, for deliverance, for vengeance rises like incense before the throne of God. And God has heard their groaning and God has remembered his covenant and God has seen his people and God knows. And God rains down fire from heaven to deliver his people and to avenge their blood upon the world. Salvation through judgment. The seven trumpets which follow calling forth the plagues of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth are the result of the prayers and groanings of the saints. Which I think begs a question. Do you groan? Are you groaning? Are you crying out for rescue? Are you burdened and oppressed by the wickedness of this world through which we walk as pilgrims? Or are you quite comfortable here? Can you relate to the Israelites? groaning under the oppression and bondage of Egypt because John assumes that you are. He assumes that you are groaning and crying out saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. And I have a suspicion that many of us aren't in much of a hurry for Jesus to come back because we rather like it here. I have a theory that much of our struggle to relate to and rejoice in passages like this that speak of God's coming judgment upon this wicked world is owing to the fact that we do not groan under the hostility of this world because, in fact, we have made friends with this world. We are of this world. And so we view the the news of God's coming judgment with a sense of aversion. Not really sure which line we are on. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan. Inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why does Paul say that? It sounds strange to 21st century middle class America. Grown inwardly, wait eagerly. Life's pretty good. Why does he say that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and he's not speaking about some. If you have the Spirit, he's speaking about you. Why does he say we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption and our resurrection? What does he assume that we would be groaning about? What do we have to groan about, you may ask? 
I think that Paul is speaking of the groaning of spirit-indwelt believers over the realities of wickedness, of decay, and of death. Not merely in the world outside of us, but inside of us as well. When we look at the depravity of the world, when we look and see a world in utter rebellion against its creator, when we see the creature daily trampling upon the glory of the creator, Paul assumes that we will groan inwardly and await eagerly the day when Christ will return to put an end to the rebellion. Paul assumes that we care that much about the glory of Jesus in all the earth. When we see a world ravaged by death and decay, we groan deeply and wait eagerly for Christ to come, to swallow up death in victory and to make all things new. You lose a loved one before, quote-unquote, their time. And you'll know what it means to groan. Furthermore, when we see the depravity that still resides within our hearts, the wickedness that streams through our minds and the weakness of our desires for God, We groan for the day when Christ will come and make us new. Delivering us from this body of death and transforming us into the glory of the children of God. Do you groan inwardly and wait eagerly for that day? Do you wait eagerly for the day of adoption, for the day of resurrection when sin and death will be no more? Test yourselves. Can you say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Because if death is gain, then we wait eagerly for the day when we gain. I don't think many of us do. I think we tend to look at these terrible scenes of judgment with a sense of aversion and not a little embarrassment. In much the same way, we tend to shrink back from the account of the destruction of Canaan when Israelite conquered the promised land. And I think the reason for that is that we've made peace with the world and we've made peace with sin. The sin of the Amorite, so to speak, No longer repulses us. We see that every night on television. Just keep on watching. We have become comfortable with the depravity that surrounds us and with the sin that still infects us. But this is a text for groaners. Not grumblers. Groaners. And only those who are in a battle groan for victory. Only those who feel their bondage to sin, hating the sin that they love, despising their weakness and falling into the same temptation for the hundredth time. Only those cry out to God for redemption and deliverance. And so ask yourself, do I groan? 
Are my prayers mixed in with the incense being offered to God in response to which God is going to pour out judgment upon this earth at the end of which He's going to lead me out in the exodus of the ages? This text is for those who groan. And it is a promise that God hears your groaning. He remembers His covenant. He sees your affliction, your bondage, your oppression, your struggle, your war. And He knows. He knows. And He will come to deliver you from the land of slavery and bring you into the land of promise where He will dwell in your midst and you will be His people and He will be your God. Where there will be no more sin and no more sorrow and no more addictions and no more pain and no more grief and no more death and He will wipe every tear from your eye. But He's going to deliver you in the same way He delivered Israel from Egypt. Salvation through judgment. And that's what the seven trumpets are about. The only way you will ever leave Egypt is when Egypt is brought to its knees. And the only way you will ever enter the promised land is if Jericho falls first. And I believe this is how we are to understand the seven trumpets that follow. In verses 2 through 5, God has heard the groanings of His people in the bondage of this world. And the trumpet blasts that follow usher in plagues of judgment upon this world, resulting in the ultimate deliverance of His people and our entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. So the time frame of this vision cycle is once again this age of tribulation between the first and second comings of Christ, between His ascension and His descension. And I know that some of you are having a hard time wrapping your mind around that, and that's okay. You have a hard time seeing the seven seals or the seven trumpets as being characteristic of this age between the first coming and second coming of Christ. You have a hard time seeing it as being characteristic of the age in which you live because it seems so distant and removed from your experience The judgments that are poured out when the seals are broken and when the trumpets sound are so awful and they seem so far removed from your present experience that you're kind of skeptical when I say, this is happening now, has been since Christ ascended and will until he descends. I want to see if I can help you out with that for just a moment. Let me give you four reminders. Okay, number one. The fact that it has been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended in no way alters the fact that His ascension inaugurated what in biblical terminology is called the last days. Peter, speaking at Pentecost, called it the last days, Acts 2.17. Paul, writing to Timothy, called it the last days, 2 Timothy 3.1. John warned his church that it was the last hour, 1 John 2.18. 
See, God and not man establishes the eschatological or the end times time frame. And with him, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. 2 Peter 3.8 So the length of time since Christ ascended is no obstacle to seeing Revelation 8 as being fulfilled even now. Secondly, the Bible, including the book of Revelation, was written for the suffering global church, not just the 21st century middle class American church. The churches to which John wrote at the end of the first century were groaning. They were being slandered, they were being imprisoned, and they were being put to death. The Sudanese and North Korean churches are groaning today under the ravages of famine, feeling as if the simple act of eating were akin to trying to make bricks without straw. The Syrian churches are groaning under the constant threat from a very beast-like ISIS. And to all of these churches and more, the promise in Revelation is God's judgment will result in their ultimate deliverance. And that news is very relevant and it is very good. Number three, remember that these are apocalyptic visions and not historical narrative. They're not literal descriptions. They are highly symbolic employing horrific images to represent horrific realities. I would venture to say that if you were the victim of a natural catastrophe, then the imagery used in these first four trumpet judgments would not seem so foreign to you. And number four, remember that the order of the trumpets, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, that is the sequential order in which John sees them, not necessarily the historic order in which they appear or occur. So like the first five seals, Revelation 6, 1 to 11, I believe the first five trumpets are simultaneous and are characteristic of this age. And I'll explain more of that next week. All right, with this in mind, we're going to move swiftly through the remainder of Revelation 8 and explore the first four trumpet judgments. Verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. While these trumpets encompass the same time period as the corresponding seals, they are more pointed and they are more purposeful. The seals were descriptions of realities that characterized the tribulation of this age. Conquest, war, famine, disease, death, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, wars and rumors of wars occurring like birth pangs increasing in frequency and in intensity, culminating in violent birth at the end of the age, in judgment as the new heavens and the new earth usher forth. Believers and unbelievers alike endure these realities, and our call, like the martyrs, is to persevere in faith through them, bearing witness to the word of God's judgment and mercy. 
Those are the seals. God's judgment in the seals, therefore, is of a more passive variety. God allows, he gives mankind over and he allows the sinfulness of man full reign to destroy itself. And that's been happening for 2,000 years. Case in point, all of the 20th century. The trumpets, on the other hand, seem to focus on God's active judgment upon a wicked and hostile world like the plagues of Egypt. In these trumpet judgments, God is demonstrating His sovereign power over nature, trumpets 1 to 4, over the realm of evil, trumpets 5 and 6, in order to bring the kingdom of this world to its knees, trumpet 7. Also like the Egyptian plagues, which did not touch the children of Israel living up in the land of Goshen, there is an element of spiritual protection for the people of God. They've been sealed. And so we see in chapter 9 in the fifth trumpet that Apollyon and his demonic horde are not allowed to touch those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 4 of chapter 9. The church cannot help but be affected physically by the first four plagues which strike the natural realm, but they are still protected spiritually, especially when the demonic powers of the fifth and sixth plagues appear. When the angel blows the first trumpet, hail and fire mingled, from, mingled with blood are thrown down from heaven upon the earth. You'll notice this downward direction in all of the trumpets. Down, down, down. This because they're all pictured as coming from the censer which the angel hurled towards the earth. Hail and fire mixed with blood, resulting in the destruction of a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all the green grass. This is clearly a reference to the seventh Egyptian plague in Exodus 9, 23-25. It is also clearly symbolic in nature, representing God's judgment upon the earth. And it is limited in its scope. Because the time is not yet the end. So only a third of the earth and only a third of the trees perish in this violent electrical storm. It's not intended, this plague is not intended to obliterate the world of men, but to bring it to its knees. Second trumpet, judgment upon the seas. First was judgment upon the earth. Now we see judgment upon the seas. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The plague unleashed by the second trumpet and the third as we'll see next calls to mind the first Egyptian plague when the Nile turned to blood, and all the fish in the Nile died. Exodus 7, verse 20 and 21. The point is that God is raining down fiery judgment from heaven, this time upon the realm of the seas. The calamity will destroy the maritime economy, just as the corresponding Egyptian plague did. And we'll see this again in Revelation 18, 19. When we read that all the shipmasters and seafaring men lament the fall of Babylon, saying, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. One thinks of the destruction of the Armada from Spain. 
The point being that whether Egypt in Israel's day or Rome in John's day or Spain in the day of the destruction of the Armada, God will judge the kingdoms of this world at the very point of their proud boasting. Again, however, we see that the judgments of God in this age, like the plagues of Egypt, are limited in their scope. So only a third of the sea, only the third of the creatures, only a third of the ships. Third trumpet brings judgment upon the waters. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So this trumpet unleashes a plague which also finds its correspondence in that first Egyptian plague when the waters of the Nile turned to blood. The effect, you will remember, of that first Egyptian plague was twofold. Number one, all the fish in the Nile died, first or second trumpet thus destroying a major food source and disrupting the maritime industry. And number two, the source of drinking water in Egypt was polluted and rendered undrinkable. Exodus 7.21, third trumpet. Now again, we are wading through the realm of apocalyptic imagery. There has not been in the last 2,000 years a meteorite fall from heaven which has poisoned a third of the rivers and streams, and I don't think that John means for us to expect one. It may happen, I don't know, but it's not the point. The point is judgment from God, notice again, from heaven to the earth, down, down, down is the direction of this judgment, this time upon the realm of the waters resulting in destruction upon the world of men. A further background for this image, if you want to write this down, comes from Jeremiah 9.15 and Jeremiah 23.15 in which God promised to feed Israel wormwood and to poison their waters in punishment for their sins and disobedience. Wormwood is a bitter herb that contaminates water sources and it is often used in the Old Testament as an image of divine judgment. Deuteronomy 29, Proverbs 5, Amos 5. And note again that the judgment of this age is limited in its scope. Only a third of the rivers and springs. Finally, the fourth trumpet, judgment upon the heavens. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. This resembles the ninth Egyptian plague when a pervasive and unnatural darkness covered all the land of Egypt for three days. Exodus 10, verses 22 and 23. Again, the symbolic nature of this plague is clear. We're not talking here, I don't think, about a partial solar, lunar, or celestial eclipse. I think that misses the point. Rather, God is shaking the whole created order in judgment upon the earth. We have now seen God's judgment upon the four realms of nature. God has judged the earth. God has judged the seas. God has judged the waters. And God is judging the heavens. This is why the whole creation groans. It's in the pains of childbirth, even 
now, Paul says. God is systematically in this age undoing the natural order. He is shaking the heavens and the earth in preparation for His appearing. Just like He said He was going to do in Joel chapter 2 and Amos chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We're not going to deal with this verse in depth today, but rather we'll pick it up again next week. All I want you to see today is that the eagle functions to separate the first four trumpets from the last three trumpets, which are the three woes. The first four trumpets issued in plagues upon the natural realm, which affect all those who dwell upon the earth. The last three trumpets, however, bring forth woes that are directly poured out upon the unbelieving and idolatrous wicked of the world. The church will endure the first four trumpets along with the rest of the world. Natural calamities befall believers and unbelievers alike. Floods sweep away the just and the unjust alike. But in the last three trumpets, God is going to make a distinction between believers and unbelievers as we will begin to see next week. So I'll close with these words from Jesus. We've been using Luke 21 as a template of sorts, helping us to understand what's going on in Revelation 6 and 7 and 8, and we'll continue to use it. This is Jesus' last discourse on the Mount of Olives when he told his disciples what this age would bring and what would occur at the end of the age. And he says this in Luke 21. See if it sounds familiar. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That's Revelation 8. God is shaking the powers of the heavens, creating distress on earth and producing fear and foreboding in the hearts of men. Revelation 8 provides us with an alternative explanation for the, dis- the distresses that strike the natural realm. Hailstorms and lightning strikes are not ultimately the result of low barometric pressure and instability in the atmosphere. Volcanic eruptions are not finally the result of the decompression of gases within magma causing it to erupt and blow the tops off mountains. Earthquakes are not merely the result of the shifting of tectonic plates, but rather in all of these natural catastrophes, God is demonstrating His sovereignty over the natural realm, the earth, the sea, the waters, the sky, and He is inflicting plagues upon the kingdoms of this world, bringing them to their knees as He prepares to bring His people out of the land of Egypt in an exodus far greater than that which transpired 3,500 years ago. God is sounding the trumpets of judgment in preparation for the fall of the great city, Babylon, that He might bring His people into the land of promise. 
Revelation 8 is about salvation through judgment. And to the suffering, oppressed, groaning believer, that is very, very good news. God has heard your groaning. He remembers His covenant. He sees your afflictions. And He knows. 